Welcome to Free and Fair with Frenita and Foley. In this podcast, we break down complicated legal issues leading up to the 2020 U.S. presidential election. I'm Frenita Tolson, Vice Dean for Faculty and Academic Affairs here at University of Southern California Gould School of Law. And I'm Ned Foley, the Director of the Election Law Program at The Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. Before we begin, a quick note. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Hey, Frenita. It's good to see you. It's good to see you too, Ned. Tough times, huh? It is really (laughs) tough times. Are you doing okay? No. And um, I've gotten to a place where it's okay to say no. And I encourage people to be honest about how they are feeling because we are... We are in a moment, and so I think it's it's okay to not be okay. Yeah. Well, if I can say the same, um, I'm not feeling very okay myself. So uh, anyway, we have to struggle through it as best we can, right? So we should. Yeah. I do think that it's a it's a time to have you know you still have to continue these important conversations even when you don't feel like it. Um, So uh, I recently wrote a blog post for ACS. Um, with an eye towards doing just that. You know, I found that I was in a place where I didn't want to talk about it (laughs) because I was tired of um, seeing sort of systematic oppression and racism and brutality towards people of color. And I didn't want to talk about it because I just felt like it was a story on repeat. Um, So I forced myself to talk about it. And I did want to talk about it in a way that came back to some of the themes that we talked about in our very first episode about free and fair elections. Um, I thought that that's an, an, a really important part of the story that um, is not getting enough attention, uh, especially as we um, bear witness to a lot of the protests and um, that's happening all over the country. One of the um, reoccurring themes that I'm seeing on social media and um, on the news is, well, people should just vote. Right. That's that's sort of the the fallback explanation as opposed to sort of hitting the streets, because there are, of course, um, there's looting going on, there's rioting. But there are also peaceful protesters out there who are trying to make their voices heard. And um, and so a lot of that message, though, gets buried under all of the um, the chaos that's being perpetuated by people who are not really interested in carrying that message. Um, So in, in writing the piece, I really wanted to make the point that it's hard to tell people to just vote. Right. That um, I think one of the um, one of the themes that I wanted to touch on is how um, progress in this country has been um, made on a number of fronts that work together collectively. So it's not just about voting. It's also about litigation. It's also about activism, grassroots activism. It's about making changes um, in policy, both at the state and federal level. It's always been um, all of these different fronts that move the ball forward. So, you know, with Martin Luther King, you also had Malcolm X, you also had Thurgood Marshall, and you also had other people who were working towards a common goal, but using different tactics. And so I've always believed that that's important. And so in telling people to vote, I think that it ignored the difficulties that um, have been placed in front of people of color in particular since the court's decision in Shelby County versus Holder, which um, invalidated uh, part of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which was designed to make it easier for people to vote. Um, and so because of that, you've seen uh, widespread efforts to try to suppress the vote and to disenfranchise people through, you know, voter ID laws that are in some cases very strict and not necessary um, through co- closing polling places and, and uh, voter purges and other tactics used to disenfranchise people of color. And so if we are um, truly a democracy, right, we should take umbrage at efforts to keep people who are entitled to vote from voting. And we should also be cautious in telling people to vote in response to um, injustice when we've made it more difficult to do so. And so I just, as a part of me just wanted to call out that hypocrisy, the fact that we tell people to vote and use the, the formal structures of democracy while simultaneously excluding them from that structure. Yeah, well, um, it's an important essay. I hope people can read it maybe in, in the notes to the episode, we can put a link to where they can find it on the American Constitution Society page so people get the benefit of your written word as well as your spoken word today. Um, yeah, I hope I so. Not, yeah. yeah, I hope so. Can I ask one question as a follow-up to sure. start a dialogue on this? Um, you know, obviously our podcast is about elections and voting and, you know, that's our specialty, uh, election law, but we mm-hmm. both are 
well-versed in constitutional law as well as election law. And I think it's important to locate democracy and elections within a larger constitutional framework. Because I guess what I want to ask is, is, is a fair election good enough? If we try to diagnose the pathology of America today, and this I came out of an aspect of your piece, um, if we conformed our elections to genuine majority rule, would that be good enough? Right now in America, we have structures that allow for um, political minorities to prevail, not racial or ethnic minorities or religious minorities, but um, the structure of the electoral colleges we've talked on previous episodes, the structure of the United States Senate in particular, allows for you know less than 50% of the American people to exert political control over the country as a whole. Um, and so many people, I think, within our field seek electoral reform that would bring our election laws in alignment with more genuine majority rule. But is that good enough? I mean, we talk about the tyranny of the majority. So if we, if we fixed ele- fixing elections, meaning reforming elections so they work, do we have a genuinely egalitarian society governed by a constitutional commitment to equal citizenship for all, or is, are, are the problems that we face larger than just voting in elections? Um, great question, Ned. I actually, um, I don't think it's enough. I know that is our focus. We focus on elections and election, um, and make sure our elections are um, kind of a, a, a fulfillment of the promise that we have. Um, our, our commitment to more democracy post 1965, right? So we have this ideal in mind and we try to um, argue in, in various articles and, and in various outlets that our elections need to be brought in line with that ideal. Um, but I don't think it's enough, right? Because um, this is part of a much larger story. I mean, inequality is part of our DNA. That is not a statement that everyone will agree with, right? But you cannot really refute that when Thomas Jefferson said all men are created equal, he was not thinking about all of us, right? So inequality is a is, you know, part of who we are. It's part of our story. Right. So to the extent that we work towards an ideal, we also have to work towards maintaining what we've gained so that it is not lost. Right. So this 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 march towards progress and and having greater fairness in elections and eradicating racial discrimination in voting and in other areas, it is an ongoing commitment. And it will always be because where we started off as a country is a country fundamentally committed to inequality. Slavery is an institution that is about inequality. We made constitutional accommodations for the institution of slavery. And so because we're still operating under a document that has traces of that, right? So we had the Reconstruction Amendments, but we still have the Electoral College. We still have many of the institutions from the original Constitution that are, frankly, tainted by our original accommodation of slavery. And so because of that, there will always be this constant social, legal, and cultural struggle against inequality. And it's not enough to just have a fair election. Now, this does not mean we have not made progress, right? I'm not trying to sort of erase all of the gains of you know the last two centuries. We have, people have been fighting, but the point is we have to fight. Um, I think the, the famous quote is power sees nothing without a demand. And in some ways we have to modify it to say power will never see anything without a demand and we have to constantly demand. Um, so for all of the progress we make, we have to continue to demand that this, this country um, up, upholds its founding ideal in a sense that all men are created equal, but now we are defining it for a new era, right? It's not just men, it's not just white men, um, it's women, it's all of us, right? It's, it's, it's about us continuing to fight in order to refine that original statement. Um, and it'll always be difficult, right? This, the fact that we have protests happening really globally, right? This is not something, what's going on here is resonating worldwide. Um, the fact that this is happening, it'll probably happen again in the future. Right. Because our commitment to equality will always be an ongoing project, um, just based off of how we we were founded as a country. True. And uh, you have a historical bent to your scholarship and, and I, you know, we value that in a, each other's work. And I, 
You know, I was reflecting earlier today that what we're, the 15th Amendment was 150 years ago, essentially, and the 19th Amendment, women's suffrage, was 100 years ago. Uh, and actually, from the perspective of racial equality, 1920 was pretty low. I mean, you know, yeah. in other words, we were better off in 1870. It looked more promising in terms of racial equality, not for gender equality. And then we had, you know, the horrific rollback of Reconstruction. Right. Um, do you have, I mean, you know, we're all human, so we don't have crystal balls. Do you have a vision for America either 100 years from now or 150 years from now? Well, um, if the asteroid doesn't hit this week um, <laughs> and the, the, the murder hornets don't get us and... Uh, I don't know. I, I, I am an optimist, right? I believe that. So let's or, let me, or fifty years. I mean, again, we've been talking about you know the the Voting Rights Act of sixty five and you know where we are relative to that commitment. Um, you know, whatever time frame you want to think about, but uh, are we, because you said it's going to be a constant struggle. So we need to be in this for the long term. I think we need to be this in this for grandchildren and great grandchildren and, yes. and a sense of a society and a community because it's not going to be overnight. Right. So I don't but I don't want to give the impression of, you know, all hope is lost. Like, I don't I don't think anyone really endorses that. That, that would I mean, it's, it's quite fatalistic. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I do think it's important to understand that. Um, well, you know how, this is a great example. You know how George Bush had the mission accomplished uh, banner up? We can never say mission accomplished. And I think that's what, even in a hundred years, I do think things will be better, right? But it'll be better through the struggles of the people who are on the front lines fighting these issues, right? We have to you know, teach our children and our grandchildren to be vigilant about fighting for equality. I, as long as we continue to do that, hope will never be lost, right? And that in 100 years, I can optimistically say we'll probably be better off. We are better off now than we were 100 years ago, even though we are fighting many of the same battles, right? But I think it's important not to become complacent and not to say that the mission is ever accomplished, right? One thing that I impart on my own children who are extremely privileged is that their privilege will not save them. Right. They are not, you know, just because they are growing up in an upper middle class household does not mean that they are free from the scourge of racial discrimination. Right. This is something that everyone needs to care about. Um, one of the things I've uh, talked to some of my friends about this week is the importance of white people having these conversations among themselves, because black people understand the stakes. People of color understand the stakes. Marginalized communities understand the stakes. They understand why people are marching. Right. But it's really important for white people to also be having these conversations so that they understand the stakes. Because hopefully the next hundred years will not, and I, and I am hopeful of this, if you look at the protests today as compared to the protests in 1968, it's much more diverse, right? So hopefully in a hundred years, we'll reach sort of this multicultural, multiracial coalition of people who understand what is at stake and why, you know, inequality to some is inequality to all. Um, so I do. I'm optimistic. In 100 years, we I'm, I know we'll still be fighting this battle, but I do think that we can create a culture in which the outcome matters to everybody. Uh, can I ask you about, you had recommended a book a while back that I confess I've started but have not gotten as far into as I want to, and it's the biography of Frederick Douglass that <sighs> won the Pulitzer Prize recently. Yes. And I, and I am enjoying And the reason why I ask that is... Um, you know, this week I've been, among many, many thoughts, I've been wondering what it would have been like for African Americans, you know, particularly in the South, you know, who saw the promise of Reconstruction during Grant's presidency when we, you know, they did get the 15th Amendment and the 14th Amendment, and they got a, a taste of what civic equality might begin to look like as they voted and took office and, and participated in, pol in the polity in a way that they hadn't been able to before. And then with the collapse of Reconstruction, it all you know got ripped away. Um, and it got ripped away for 100 years. I mean, it took you know 100 years to undo the tragedy of the end of Reconstruction. So it, 
there were people who had to live the, out the rest of their lives under that cloud, under that darkness, under the terrorism of the Ku Klux Klan among you know and lynching and 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 so I've been trying. I confess I haven't read enough literature to 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 know the psychology of loss of that kind of having having a sense of hope and then a sense of hope betrayed. And I was just curious whether or not, as Frederick Douglass, you know, moved through at the antebellum period and the Civil War. And then, as I understand it, you know, he lived into the 1890s. He must have personally experienced that, that loss, that ripping away, as did so many other people. And I was just curious. Again, I, I hope that we're not going, I mean, I know we're going through a rollback. You mentioned Shelby County. It's undeniable mm-hmm. that we are, you know, the civil rights of the 60s is in a, in a recessionary mode. But I don't want to overstate the degree of the rollback. Um, and I'm just trying to calibrate what the psychology today, how it relates to what the devastating psychology of the 1880s and 1890s must have been like for African-Americans. So I try to be careful about comparing misery, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, you know, in a sense, I don't want to say, well, things are as bad as they were back in the 1890s. Um, because, you know, to me, to me, one number one is disrespectful to the ancestors, especially my ancestors who survived slavery. I couldn't imagine. Right. Um, but I do think it is important to learn from that time. Um, and so one thing that has stood out to me as I think about voter suppression issues during Reconstruction and Redemption, which is the period where white redeemers took over Southern governments again, um, is the fact that black people still fought, right? They still litigated. They still, you know, went to the federal government and tried to get them to, you know, enforce the Enforcement Act and do all of these various things. So I, I do think that even when you have rollbacks, um, people of color remain hopeful and they re- remain sort of like committed to this idea that they have to fight, even when things seem hopeless. And so th- that is one parallel I can draw between that time and now. Um, it's not that things are as bad as they were back then. Things are bad, don't get me wrong, but it's not it's, it's not nearly as bad as, you know, what the ancestors have experienced. But it is there's this sense of hope that I feel straddles generations. Um, and, and I think it's that sense of hope that makes all of us feel like we have an obligation tr- to try to make things better for the next generation. And this is why I felt like it was important to sort of write the ACS blog post and, and get this this out there to make people understand that, you know, if we're going to use this language of democracy, that obligates us to do certain things towards our people that we are not doing. Right. You cannot disenfranchise people and then call yourself a democracy. And so if we're going to own that language, then we, we, we need to revisit how we treat the citizens seeking to exercise the right to vote. Um, and so, I mean, we all do our part. There are people out there who are marching. Um, there are people out there who are writing articles, writing op-eds. And, you know, people are agitated. We are definitely living in a moment. Um, and honestly, you know, and, and I know there are some historians who hate the parallels to 1968. But, you know, if you look at... Um, some of the footage from 1968, and if you read up on that time period, it, it does have a 1968 feel. Um, you know, and, and then sometimes it depends on what you're talking about. If you if you follow what's going on with the president and his response to um, current events, some might say that this is like 1980 or 1932 in the sense of, you know, this is a disjunctive presidency to, to borrow um, political science language, right? The, the fact that, you know, the Republican Party is a, a not really a party, right? It's kind of a faction on its last legs and given their inability to respond to the current crisis, right? So there are a lot of ways to talk about what's going on. And I think one thing I wanted to do in the piece is to bring together these different strands in order to uh, spotlight the fact that we're failing as a democracy. I'll make one other point too on this. Um, I've written about how the right to alter or abolish government is the predecessor of the right to vote. Right. So you give people voting rights so that they won't rebel, so that they won't react violently. Um, and so the the protests that are occurring now, it is not surprising. Right. If you are systematically disenfranchising people, they're going to fall back on their right to alter or abolish government. Um, and, and, and to me, there's just not enough conversation around that. Um, people are dismissive of. Uh, what's going on now and they they refuse to equate it to like the Boston Tea Party or any other instances in which as Americans we're proud of the rebellion right the the revolutionary war and so and so on uh, but in in many ways there are parallels 
right? Um, the, the colonists felt disenfranchised. They felt like um, England was not listening to them. Um, yet when American citizens voice the same discontent with their government, we're highly critical of them if they're not protesting in a certain way. Um, and so I, I really do think as a country, we need to take a hard look in the mirror, right? We need to assess how we treat people in terms of the rights that we extend to them. You cannot take away people's rights and then expect them to behave politely when they're trying to contest the fact that they've been disempowered. True. Um, I mean, the, boy, I want to take this conversation in so many different <laughs> directions. Um, first, can I just say something about the word redemption? I'm glad yes. you used it. Um, because I think that's such an awful distortion of what should be a, a good word, but it's such an ugly term in that so usage ugly. of it. And and I think you know our history is not well taught in grades. Maybe maybe it's it's because it's such a tragic history. It's probably hard to teach sixth graders or eighth graders the the truth. But I don't know how we can make progress unless we acknowledge. The truth, and in some ways, the use of that word, to me, symbolizes the ugliness of it. Mm -hmm. They thought they were redeeming, and what were they redeeming? They were dream redeeming terrorism and and you know the the vilest aspect of our. I mean, they wanted to redeem slavery if they could if they could recreate slavery. They were trying to get as close to it as possible. Um, so anyway. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so we we could go in that, but I want to actually come back to your reference to alter and abolish, and um, you know our Jeffersonian heritage of our mm -hmm. society, uh, because I think for at any moment in time, conscientious people have to ask themselves, you know, do you work within the system trying to reform it, or you know, do you try to exercise that most fundamental right of revolution, and you know, what would that that mean, um, and and I do think that's a different question for African Americans today, you know, than somebody like like me. And and but I think it's a conversation as difficult as it is is worth you know worth worth having. And and it goes back to the essence of your essay and and where I started in asking you about majority rule, because I take it that for democracy to kind of work long term, there can't be permanent majorities and permanent minorities in the political sense, right? Because otherwise, then democracy is inherently oppressive, because it would mean the winners always win, and the losers always lose. And, and yet, as polarized as we become in a partisan way, we risk that problem. You know, in other words, if you know, if one party is the, has the ability to prevail over the other party, whether through minority control under our current structures or under majority control under different structures, either way, the oppressed are going to want to change, you know, abandon the system because you can't be a permanent loser in a system and think it's a valid system. So it. it your optimism is what I want to cling to because as you described your optimism, it was the sense of multiracial coalitions that were fluid so that there were no longer any permanent winners and permanent losers. And, and again, maybe we are at this pivotal moment where, you know, again, the, the current generation of redeemers Make America great again. The whites, you know, the white supremacists in our system are on their last legs, their last gasp, and that you know we'll enter a different space where we have genuinely flourishing, fluid coalitions of democracy. Um, but I don't. How, how do you think that? As you said, transitions are difficult. The power, the folks in power, never want to give up power. So how do the folks who see the system working for themselves and want to cling to power and and perpetuate a stage of permanent winning, how do they accept a transition to a more fluid, flexible world in which there are no longer permanent winners and permanent losers? They may not, right? I mean, we had a whole civil war over this. <laughs> they may not. Um, but I will tell you what I told my students after the 2016 election. I had quite a few students who were upset about the, the results. And I told them, I said, you know, your job never really changes, though. Right. We are attorneys. 
And our job is to make sure that equality under the law means equality under the law, right? That people, um, um, that the experience of people in this country um, is, you know, positive and, it, and, and that it doesn't turn on the color of their skin or other, or really inequality along any dimension, right? Like our job as lawyers is, you know, that's how we think of respect for rule of, the, of law. But that's true regardless of who, pres who the president is. And this is why I make the point that we have to be vigilant and monitoring the gains. Because if we just, you know, if we get in a position where we only respond when things get really bad like they are now, then we will never make sufficient headway because we ignore the moments in which progress is lost incrementally. And then we get to these huge times where it's like, okay, is there gonna be another civil war, right? Um, so instead of that, I think we should look at our obligation as one in which we are constant about monitoring progress and making sure we're always working towards the goal of racial equality. Um, and so that's one thing. That, that may go, actually go a long way in terms of the narrative, right? Where people who are um, in positions of power or people who are white men and they feel like they've lost the country, uh, if, if things are done in a consistent basis, then equality won't feel like oppression because really that's what's going on, right? We're, we're trying to, you know, impose equality on people who feel like something is being taken away from them when it's not really about them, right? It's about, you know, elevating the status of people who have been marginalized and ignored um, since the country was founded. Um, and so, but, but for them, it feels like they are being oppressed, especially if you reach these moments where, um, you know, we're presenting them with a list of demands of all the things that we want them to do, as opposed to working towards the goal of racial equality uh, consistently and at all times. <clears throat> so that, that's one thing. I think that we have to, we have to create a narrative in which we are, um, we see the, the, the end goal to, of, of racial equality and uh, broad enfranchisement and political participation, all these different things that we talk about with respect to free and fair elections as something that is a norm. Um, it is part of our er everyday life. It is not just rhetoric. It is, it's just not things that we say. It's something that we're actually committed to. Um, and this is, it's, but it's not something that, you know, should pop up on our radar every generation as a watershed moment. Um, and, and sometimes it feels like that. Um, for people of color constantly fighting this fight, um, we feel like we are, it's like a broken record. You know, you, you, you say the same thing over and over again. It's like a warning, like, hey, you know, you can't keep treating people this way. You can't keep disenfranchising people. The police cannot keep killing black people. You know, you, we say these things. People march in Ferguson. People march, um, you know, when, um, um, People were outraged about uh, Breonna Taylor. People were outraged about George Floyd. People were outraged about Trayvon Martin. Like all of these, the, the, the list just keeps, keeps getting longer and longer. Um, and so, yeah, you get to a point where things just kind of explode because the people who are who need to pay attention are not paying attention. And part of that is, is because we come to these moments where we have to confront our history of oppression and we do it like once every generation um, or twice every generation instead of making it an ongoing project. And I think that would do a lot to diffuse what's going on because then the people in power won't feel like they are, um, are constantly being challenged and democracy really does become a way of life for us. Um, I don't know if that'll ever happen. Like I said, I'm optimistic, but I do feel like it's going to take more than just people of color um, and other people in, you know, and white allies having this conversation. Like everyone needs to have this conversation and everyone needs to act like this is something that's important to everyone, right? It needs to become the American way for real. You know, we can't just say it. Uh, because one thing I've also thought about is the fact that we have these reconstruction amendments that kind of hold these things out as an ideal, yet we're still fighting the same fight, right? And so from that, we know it's not just about the law and legal norms. It's also about our cultural commitments to these ideals that are also important, right? Because the, the, the Constitution can tell us what we can't do, right? We know from the 13th Amendment that you can't have slavery, but we allow things that mimic the very things we have outlawed. Like convict leasing is something that existed in this country for decades after the Civil War, and it is the equivalent of slavery, right? It doesn't violate the 13th Amendment per se, <laughs> right? But it is a structure that was carried out and basically had the same effect as slavery, right? And that just shows we have to be vigilant about even the things that we think that the Constitution settles are not really settled, right? This equality is an ongoing commitment. Right. Um, 
So I have three questions I want to ask you, <laughs> which is not fair to you. But okay. you're saying, um, so one is about the, your cultural point and, mm -hmm. and goes back to what you said about 1968. Another is about the upcoming election and if it is free and fair, how to think about it. And the third is about the court system mm -hmm. and the role, because you talk about the courts in your, your essay. So, so first on culture, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think... I mean, I was young in the 1960s, but but there was this sense of hope that, you know, if 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 we all as Americans embraced the values of Martin Luther King and and the Voting Rights Act and equality, yeah, we'd have disagreements about maybe a level of tax policy or whatever, but we would buy into that that basic commitment, and yet, you know, Nixon won in '68 on a on a um, you know, uh, Southern strategy, the anti-busing. Um, you know, Reagan won in 1980 um, in a way that, you know, he was a pleasant guy from California with a smile, but it was an anti-civil rights platform. Uh, you know, and and we obviously have you know the, the current situation. So, you know, I. I I wonder to what extent that this norm and value of equality is really thoroughly taken hold. As you said, inequality yeah. is in our cultural DNA, not equality. So how do we get to a place where, you know, Americans, you know, genuinely believe what we sometimes profess to believe and at moments we seem to believe, yet it, it's not looking like it's as widespread a belief as as it should be. It should be sort of a given, and then we argue about other things. And it, it doesn't seem to be quite as given as it should be. Well, um, so one thing we have to stop doing is thinking that we'll ever get to 100%, right? We'll never get to a point where 100% of the country believes in racial equality, um, ever. And even, and I know some people are like, you know, as soon as this generation dies out, we're good, right? Because, you know, over time, we've had better white people. <laughs> right. Like there's just this sense that, you know, if this baby boomer generation, once we get past this, this is where the this stuff is taught. Right. Not only is it taught. I go back to my earlier point. It is ingrained in our DNA. Maya Sin, who is a political scientist out of Harvard, has this great book about racial attitudes in the Deep South and how racial attitudes are worse in areas that were um, big cotton producers. And they And they remain worse than other areas of the South. Right. And so a lot of this is tied to sort of our history and it's not about people dying out. Right. This is just, you know, this is the reality of our country. Race is always going to be a salient issue. That's why um, colorblindness is especially infuriating to me. Right. Because colorblindness is not a compliment to people of color. It's not saying, well, color race doesn't matter to me. Race does matter. Race is fundamental to who we are as a country. Right. And it's also saying that you are colorblind denies my existence as a person of color in this country. Right. That means that you don't understand that my experience is fundamentally different from yours as a person of color. Right. And that's not a good thing. So instead, the question should be, how do we um, ensure that we don't retreat back to where we were? And then how do we move forward all while understanding that we live in a framework in which race will probably always be an enduring issue in this country. At some point, that needs to be taken as a given, as opposed to, you know, trying to find some, you know, illusory metric for saying, we've arrived, we are no longer concerned with the issue of race. We will probably never get there, right? But the fact that people assume that we can get there is what allowed for people to say in 2008 that our race problems are over. We elected Obama, right? And it's because we have this, you know, this delusion that somehow race is something that can be overcome. Race is something that probably cannot be overcome, but it is something that we can work towards as long as we understand that this is something that haunts us, right? As, when you understand that something lives with you and you can't get rid of it, you do everything you can in order to thrive despite it. And that's what we need to do as a country. Yeah, no, that's well said. All right, but to my second question, sorry, I'm, you know, I'm peppering you with these questions. Um, so, Let's stipulate that we manage, despite the COVID pandemic and everything else, to actually have an election that we would say is election law process scholars qualifies as sufficiently free and fair, that it's a genuine choice of the voters. 
using the Electoral College, et cetera, et cetera. And suppose, you know, the, the current president wins re-election. Mm-hmm. What, what conversation do you have with your students again or the protesters on the street that say, that's just going to per- perpetuate the same systematic structural inequalities because white privilege remains dominant the police departments around the country will reflect that white privilege and 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 racial minorities are going to be oppressed for yet another at a minimum 4 years if not if not longer and so we can't abide by the result of the election we need that revolution or something because because we can't just tolerate the result of a free election well you know i it won't be the first time, right? I know it, it feels unprecedented, but it really isn't, right? As you mentioned, um, African-Americans were disenfranchised in the South for 100 years after the Civil War, right? It's not, it's not that this is unprecedented. They, there were a series of precedent, presidents who did absolutely nothing about it. Um, you know, so if, if, if the current president is reelected, I would be extremely disappointed, right? Because his his reelection says something about where we are as a country. It's actually bigger than Donald Trump, right? The, if you can look at everything that's going on now and, and he still wins reelection, then that says something about us as a country and where we want to be and sort of the vision moving forward. But for the rest of us, the for me, the question would be, okay, when is the next protest, right? What am I going to write next, right? Because you have to keep fighting. And and honestly, it shouldn't matter who the president is. And me personally, I feel like the the current occupant of the White House presents a, a fairly unique threat to democracy in this country, right? If the goal is to work towards us earning that label, um, I think that he does a lot to undermine it. But um, I even if Joe Biden wins in November, culturally, we need to get to a point where we still hold even Democratic administrations to account. Because one thing I have learned throughout this entire experience is that everything is fleeting, right? I re- I'm old enough to remember when the Voting Rights Act was actually enforced, right? Like everything is fleeting, right? So it, it's really important for those of us, especially people in the civil rights community, to hold these people in power to account regardless of who it is. And if, you know, the current occupant wins again, then you continue to march, you continue to write, you continue to be active, you continue to do all the things to hold government to account. Um, my only point is that it should not turn on who the occupant is. This is we just have to be vigilant generally. Um, and one thing I will never do is become complacent, regardless of who's in. And I could, you know, I'm not a big Joe Biden fan, honestly. Uh, but uh, I do think he would be better. But even if he wins, I'm still going to sort of beat the drum. I will never become complacent again. And that has been my biggest lesson through all of this, you know, just the need to speak up, the need, the need to be active, the need to, um, to, to write things and advise um, people who are litigating these issues on the importance of the right to vote. Because even if you get an occupant in the White House who supports your position, they are only president for four or eight years, right? And things can go left really, really quickly. And they did, right? Like. 2016 was only four years ago. And it's crazy to think that the world was in a completely different place in October 2016 than it, than it was in even December 2016, right? Think January, uh, late January, early February, people were already protesting because of policies announced by this administration. Things changed that quickly. And so it's just, it's really important to understand that all of this is fleeting. So I'm going to now ask my third leftover question, but I got a new one to add to that. Okay. <laughs> so the leftover one involves the courts, because again, you mentioned that in your essay, um, and you, you contrasted the Warren Court and what it did, you know, with the current court that did Shelby County, and it does seem to me that you know Senator McConnell, as majority leader in the Senate, you know, was successful in denying Merrick Garland a seat on the court and looking at the court as a branch of government that, you know, yes, they may win elections, but, you know, they would at least get the courts for the next generation. So so how do we think about that as election law scholars? Um, Are we just, do we need to just accept the fact that, that McConnell was successful and the court will be 
the court that it is, regardless of, of electoral change in Congress and the presidency, um, you know, for 10, 20, 30 years? Or do you believe that, you know, the alternative, we don't have to maybe go full revolution, but are you enamored of court packing or other aggressive moves to try to recalibrate the balance of, of power um, in order to try to achieve a better sense of equality or justice? I do think it's important to prioritize judicial appointments in the way that the current administration has and that the Obama administration did not, right? Even lower court appointments. I think that it wasn't enough of a focus uh, for that administration. And now we're kind of suffering the effects of that. Um, I, don't, I don't know how I feel about court packing. I, in the back of my mind, I always think, well, whatever we do, they can do too, <laughs> right? And as I pointed out, you know, uh, things can shift very quickly. Uh, so I don't know if I'm 100% comfortable with that. Um, but I do, I, I understand why people are, are saying that, you know, they, the idea that we've lost the federal courts for a generation is, is a thought that's too much to bear for a lot of people. But if you think about it from a voting rights perspective, we lost the courts a long time ago. Yeah, Shelby County is the worst of it, but things have been sort of trending in that direction for a while. Um, from, from much of the last three decades, a lot of the litigation in the voting rights space was kind of defending as opposed to trying to expand, right? It was <laughs> it was about trying to hold on to the gains of the 1960s. But in no way can you say that anything was expanded past what we had in the 1960s, right? So we've kind of been on the defensive for a while when it comes to issues of racial equality and voting and elections in the courts. Um, but I do think that we need to also focus on things that don't get a lot of attention. They're starting to get more, right? State courts, for example, are, um, uh, are not discussed nearly enough as alternatives to the federal courts. And they have actually been quite proactive on the gerrymandering stuff. Um, another uh, possibility is is direct democracy, right? So, you know, Amendment 4 in Florida, which is the felon reenfranchisement um, amendment, uh, got a lot of attention. But um, almost every state has some mechanism for direct democracy. So these are all avenues that I think should get equal time to court packing. Right. Which I don't, I don't know if I'll, I'll ever be comfortable with it, even though I understand the sentiment behind it. But I do think that there are other things we can do as well that could have um, just as much impact. Uh, good. And maybe we can come back to that topic. I'm also watching the clock and, and realize that we probably don't have enough time to fully explore what I'm now about to ask. But the great thing about a podcast is we've got future episodes to to work through this some more. Um, mm -hmm. You, you talked earlier about voter ID laws and voter suppression and disenfranchisement and, you know, talked about Shelby County as, um, you know, uh, an evisceration. Of, I'm not sure that, that was the exact word, but the concept of eviscerating the Voting Rights Act. And what I'd like to explore is how to have a conversation um, while respectful of that perspective on the current situation of antagonism to voting rights, um, mm -hmm. to see whether there's space for reasonable differences of opinion on some of these issues. Because, you know, my own view is that, you know, there's a lot of voter ID laws I don't like, but I don't believe that every form of voter ID is inherently voter suppression or disenfranchisement. And I think it's important, you know, from my own perspective, to, to distinguish things which are outright disenfranchisement, like felon disenfranchisement is, versus regulations of the electoral process, which could be characterized as impediments or barriers, but perhaps have some good faith justification in terms of um, balancing access and integrity. So for, you know, one maybe easy example of this is the Democratic Party right now is very aggressive in, in litigation on trying to invalidate laws that they that they use the terminology of ballot collection right mm -hmm. they do not like any law that limits uh, political groups from going around and collecting ballots and returning absentee or vote by mail ballots and returning them on mass um, Republicans hate that and call it ballot harvesting um, my own view is the Republicans are right on that issue that ballot harvesting is not a good idea 
and I don't think it's prudent or appropriate for Democrats to be aggressively litigating to, to kind of undo ballot har harvesting. You know, there's a way probably to have that discussion, you know, that is much more polemical and aggressive and, you know, and, uh, and again, polarized versus a way to try to figure out, you know, what's a, what's a sensible position. And, you know, and whatever one thinks about that particular issue, um, you know, there's a series of them. And even Shelby County, which, I, as we've talked about, you know, I'm not particularly a fan of, I don't see it in quite the same terms that you do. And I still am thankful that there is a Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act that is enforceable, even if Section 5 isn't. So, um, I don't know, do you want to react at all to that? Yeah, sure. Um, so, I do think there's a way to have that conversation. Um, so, um, my my position basically boils down to two words <laughs> prove it right <laughs> if a state actually needs a voter id law they need to prove that there's fraud prove it right because if you think about it if the right to vote is really a right any in any other context in which there is a possibility of a right being abridged or denied we require the state to come forward with evidence in order to, to support the law that is abridging or denying that right we barely do that in the context of voting rights, right? The test that courts apply is extremely deferential to the states. And even if you think about how the court has articulated the voter fraud question in the context of these cases, fraud or appearance of fraud, even if we talk about appearance of fraud, it's not as if the courts require states to come forward with evidence that people believe that there's actually fraud. They basically get to pass a law that makes it harder for people to vote evidence-free, right? So for me, it's not a question of whether or not um, states' voter ID laws are good or bad as a policy matter. For me, it's a question of since when do we allow states to abridge or deny rights without proof? Well, yeah, and I think I agree with you on the policy point, but, but so to me, it seems to me pretty obvious that it would be more voter rights friendly if Election Day was on the weekend as opposed to on Tuesday. Um, you know, I think it may have been picked for Tuesday because that was good for the harvest or whatever way back when, but from a modern world, it probably is not as voter right friendly to have election day on Tuesdays. Um, and so I could imagine a section two claim under the Voting Rights Act that would make the argument that regardless of intent, having elections on a Tuesday, you know, might have a discriminatory impact as a matter of results. Um, but I don't know that I want all of the laws governing the electoral process to be sort of under judicial micromanagement such that you know the courts get to say all right well even though the legislature has decided they want to keep election day on tuesday we feel we can change the rules if they don't want to change the rules i mean drawing the line between what judges should do and what judges should stay out of is very hard for me so i don't want to pretend to have the answer but um i don't know whether or not the decision on election day being tuesday or sunday is subject to the prove it point. I think maybe the government gets to keep election day as Tuesday. Yeah, maybe it's not. I'm not trying to apply the point universally, right? Like, um, and also it, it also has to do with our constitutional commitments. We have a constitutional commitment that the right to vote would not be abridged or denied on the basis of race, right? So maybe it does matter if voting day, if election day is on a Tuesday and it has a disproportionate impact on people of color. Maybe that is something we should care about, right? And maybe we would in that circumstance require the state to prove it because of our co constitutional commitment to racial equality and voting, right? Um, but if we're talking about more generally, Tuesday makes it difficult for people to vote. And that is a difficulty that is in, in you know, that is internalized by people regardless of race. Um, to me, that is a, a different conversation, right? We can have that conversation in the context of the court's right to vote jurisprudence under the 14th Amendment, uh, where there isn't really an explicit textual um, hook. And instead, we have a lot of case law. Uh, but I do think that uh, in the context of voter ID, where um, in, in some states it does have a disproportionate impact on people of color, right? Because of that, we do have to have a serious conversation about states actually coming forward and showing that they need to have the law, right? And it, it just seems odd to me. When, in any other context, when a right is abridged, we require proof, right? And I, and, but I understand that's not going to apply mm -hmm. across the board. I just think that 
um, the conversation should be informed by our commitment to um, racial equality and voting. And so because of that, yeah, proof should be required. So I'm thinking that we probably should have an episode devoted to Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, what it, you know, and have our listeners kind of walk through the results test, the history of that. Yes, we have to. Yeah, that would be a a useful thing to do. Well, um, thank you for today's conversation. Um, I found it very valuable. uh, And as we started out, it's a very troubling moment, but... Mm -hmm. To me, there's some solace that we are able to talk the way we are able to talk. So um, Yeah, it, and it feels different, and that's a good thing. Yeah, because for far too long, it didn't feel different. Um, this feels different, and so we'll see what happens. Um, and I do think it has some bearing on November, which is you know an important part of our conversations. And so I, I, I suspect we'll have more interesting conversations about how everything that's happening now overlaps with our uh, focus on free and fair elections. Oh, for sure. And, um, you know, we're uh, uh, recording this on uh, June 3rd, the afternoon of June 3rd, and there was actually a few primaries yesterday that we didn't talk about because there were more urgent things to discuss. Uh, Oh, do I, Ned, I want to make one point, though, that's important about what happened yesterday. Ferguson elected its first black woman mayor yesterday, right? And so I remember you asked me the question about whether voting is enough. That is the result of both voting and activism. So, yes. Fair point. Fair point. You know, we there were some results of which that was one. Uh, there was an interesting result out of Iowa um, yeah. as well, a congressional result. Uh, but Steve uh, King. Yeah. Got, he, he lost his, his primary bid and now he will be on Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> uh, but in terms of statewide results out of Pennsylvania, they didn't happen, which um, is a signal for maybe what November will look like. So we've got lots of things to talk about um, in the future. And I very much look forward to our next conversation and, you know, um, stay as well as you can between now and then. Same to you, Ned. Thanks, Renita. Thanks. That's our episode for today. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Eric French at Ohio State and Larissa Puro at USC for their roles in producing this podcast. Pranita and I very much appreciate all the support we receive at both our home institutions to make this joint endeavor possible.